My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And I need to begin by apologising actually because this show was actually meant to come out uh, last week but I was suffering from a fairly bad throat infection and I actually sounded like a poor man's Travis George from the Criterion cast which is actually quite relevant because in a bid to do more shows this year um, I've decided that I'm going to do a month-by-month -month review of the Criterion releases. Now my kind of relationship with the Criterion collection is um, one that has been quite expensive to say the least because I have actually over the past few years managed to buy all of them Oh, I think we're up to 597 now. I've just received Godzilla in the post today, actually. And it has come at the expense of a small fortune. The kind of addiction first began, um, I think, about 2002 when I began collecting them. And I'm a bit of a sucker for um, obsessive collecting because if I see kind of like spine numbers or anything, I instantly feel like I have to own all of them. And obviously the criterion um, kind of hits that spot and is also a, I, I suppose, a um, cine geek's uh, wet dream and basically over the years I kind of decided that I wanted to buy all of them because I guess some people kind of like to spend money on like nice cars and things like that and for me it's always been films although yeah I do spend my money on other things but mainly my kind of main vice as it were is uh, purchasing films and I became obsessed really with just the kind of the, the small event that is receiving a Criterion release in the post because invariably they come in a nice box and there's always kind of like a nice booklet to go through and uh, the packaging is always quite unique and it's just been something which I kind of I'm kind of supposed to, I, weirdly enough I suppose I'm kind of immensely proud of the fact that I own all of them and I do kind of treasure my collection quite a lot but I am ashamed to actually admit that I've probably only watched about half of them, and that is something that I used to when they used to come um, watch them uh, on repeat, really, for, for a few weeks, and then kind of like go back to them kind of every year. So, but over the past about three years, I've been so busy that I've been kind of um, buying them and not really watching as many as I actually should. Last year was probably the worst because of all the releases I bought last year, I probably only watched about five, and it kind of annoys me because um, often I will. Uh, listen to uh, the podcast, things like the Criterion cast and things like that, and you will hear the host talking about um, the, the great disc that arrived. And I, I just kick myself because I sort of think to myself, well, you know, why, why haven't you watched it? And it's been work-related. I had Last year was an absolute nightmare for me personally, just, just so many commitments that I didn't get the time really to sit down as much as I would like and watch my films. This year is completely different, and kind of what better way I thought to kind of keep on top of watching the films and to also do a uh, monthly review show of them. Now... What I kind of like about it as well, because of the variety in the Criterion Collection, hopefully these shows should be quite diverse with the various films that come up. And I'm actually going to be running a kind of a month in arrears, as it were, because I do um, have to order the films and they come over from America. Sometimes they seem to arrive like two or three days later. Other times it can take weeks. Um, so where on where that you know, where possible, I will try and do all the releases of the previous month. It might be that some have to kind of go over to the next month, but hopefully we should be able to keep on top of it. Um, I won't be so much talking about the re-releases in a given month. It will kind of mainly focus on the on the new spine numbers. Sometimes, perhaps if it's I don't know if it's a re-release I get hold of, I might go into more detail about it. But most of the re-releases at the moment tend to be from the back catalogue, and they are the Blu-ray upgrades. And although I do buy some of the Blu-rays, it is a bit of a nightmare because I don't actually have a multi-region Blu-ray player. And what I actually have to do is. Um, I have to take the, the disc round to a friend's house, but then have to use some software to take all the files off the disc, which I then put onto a hard drive, and then I watch the film um, by playing it through something called a popcorn hour. Now, 
it's okay if the film's in English, it's not really that much of a pain in the ass, but if it's a foreign film, I then have to go online and find the subtitle file because the Popcorn Hour I've got doesn't actually support the Blu-ray um, subtitle files that are embedded in the in the main film, so it can be a bit of a pain in the ass. and uh, of course I could buy another blank Blu-ray and then copy it, but that basic blank Blu-ray basically costs the same as a new one anyway, so that's why I probably might not be going into so much detail on the Blu-rays, but like I said, if I do get hold of them, I will definitely um, give them a shout out. But I'm going to be focusing, as I said, on mainly the new spine numbers. So for December 2011, there was only one, and that was spine number 592, Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living. Ah, dear critic. I'm a playwright. I write unproduced plays. What is your annual income in round figures? In round figures, zero. Is George still given to smashing things? Well, we have to tell him the truth regardless of what happens to the furniture. Do you love him? Oh, Max. People should never ask that question on their wedding night. It's either too late or too early. Undesirable attentions to Miss Gilda Ferris. Immorality may be fun but it isn't fun enough to take the place of 100% virtue and three square meals a day. Les petites cochons sont merveilleux. Monsieur Corpice a déménagé. Mrs. Plunkett is engaged in playing 20 questions. Animal, vegetable, or mineral? Animal. Busy? Tremendous. No sex. Mm -mm. It's a gentleman's agreement. May be a bit difficult in the beginning. But it can be worked out. Oh, it'll be grand. Save lots of time. It's true we have a gentleman's agreement. But unfortunately, I am no gentleman. Eagle Bar. Eagle Bar. Hans Lubitsch is a director who already has some films in the collection. There's Heaven Can Wait and Trouble in Paradise. He also has an Eclipse series. But although I own all these films, I'm ashamed to actually admit that Heaven Can Wait and Trouble in Paradise are two that I've not actually seen. So going into Design for Living, this was my first Lubitsch affair. And I'm also even more ashamed to admit that I have a rather brilliant Masters of Cinema uh, box sets sitting on my shelf dedicated to him and I've not even watched that either so perhaps one day I might even do a Master Cinema roundup but Design for Living was released in 1932 and it's often called a pre-code theme and I think it's kind of important to talk a little bit about what that actually means and give it some context and why this is actually quite important. Now the term pre-code is in itself a little bit misleading as it would suggest there was a kind of a time obviously where there was no code the simple fact of the matter was that there was but it wasn't actually that rigorously enforced the code was actually called the motion picture production code um, it would later become better known as the Hayes code but it was really I suppose more local laws that were far more strict than the actual code itself you know we had kind of like I don't know, local cinemas could be pressured into not screening a film by the local mayor or some kind of church group or something like that. But the fact of the matter was the MPPC was 
simply not very strict films would be given a list of recommendations which, if ignored, did not really result in any kind of fine or censorship. And it was after 1934, and intense lobbying by various groups, the code would be strictly enforced with a remit of cleaning up Hollywood, that was to say, going to give it some kind of sense of morals. And that was why we should, I think, be thankful that A Design for Living was made when it actually was. Now, it's actually based on a play by Noel Coward, and I think Noel Coward's one of those people who I kind of know him as a personality more than I do through his work. My first introduction to Noel Coward was actually the films of David Lean. And he's one of these kind of, I suppose, great kind of lovey darlings of British society. He's kind of part of that sort of unofficial monarchy that we have in this country of people who are seemingly so posh and it doesn't even matter if they're well off or they're absolutely bankrupt because they tend to live in this kind of glorious squalor frittering their money away on various things and Coward was perhaps I suppose the archetype of this type of movement. Now Lubitsch had actually moved from Hollywood, uh, from Europe, where he had been making films. And it's quite interesting, I think, when we look at um, European directors who went over to America in the kind of 20s and 30s, because now what happens when you bring a director in from abroad, I, I think the obvious one that springs to mind is someone like John Woo. We bring them over here and we just kind of essentially, we they kind of producers see something in the films that they make in their native country and then they get brought over here to make the kind of pap that every other director is making. They seem to be kind of like, I don't know, sanitised in a way, but directors in the 20s and 30s who were brought over from Europe seem to be kind of given a little bit more um, licence to uh, do what they were doing before. Certainly I'm preparing a show at the moment about F.W. Murnau and uh, I was quite surprised really how when he was kind of brought over to Hollywood by Fox he was basically just wanting to carry on doing what he was doing because it was so popular and it's kind of quite a refreshing way to be and I certainly hope it would be nice if we kind of went back to that type of mentality. And the film was written by Ben Hecht and it's, it's quite strange because it might not be the most um, familiar name to a lot of people, certainly if you kind of know anything about screenwriting he is, but you know, just this guy's kind of back catalogue, check his IMDB page out and you'll see so many films that you, you've probably seen, Scarface, Notorious, His Girl Friday and he did some work on Gone With The Wind also generally considered, I think, by certainly by screenwriters as being one of the greatest that ever lived. And I think it's the fact that the film has the DNA of Noel Coward and the writing prowess of Hecht and the direction of Lubitsch that it makes for such a fascinating piece. But what is it actually all about? Well, on a train to Paris, a commercial artist, Gilda Fowle, played by Miriam Hopkins, meets two friends, George Curtis, an artist played by Gary Cooper, and struggling playwright Thomas Chambers, played by Frederick March. The trio soon hit it off and Gilda is instantly attracted to both Tom and George, who are both equally smitten with her. When arriving back in Paris, Gilda begins a relationship with both Tom and George, who don't know that the other is actually seeing Gilda as well. Matters are further complicated by the fact that Gilda's boss, Max Plunkett, played by Edward Everett Horton, is also in love with her. Tom and George eventually discover that Gilda is sleeping with them both. The resolution? They will become a trio with strict rules on sex i.e. none. Gilda will help Tom and George with their careers and get them from bohemian squalor to riches of success. She eventually gets Tom a writing job in London and whilst he is away she most instantly begins sleeping with George. The pair send Tom a letter telling him the truth and he decides to stay in London where he finds success with his writing. One night he meets Max who has come to see one of his plays and he tells him that George has made it as an artist. Returning to Paris, 
Gilda cannot help herself. She begins having sex with Tom, therefore breaking George's heart. The two friends frighten awake to find Gilda's left them both to marry Max in Manhattan in order to save their friendship. Tom and George hightail it to Manhattan and save Gilda from a life of monogamy and boring high-class life with silly games and gossip. The people that live there are complete idiots and Gilda is clearly being trapped. Who gets the girl at the end? Well, they all do, gleefully skipping into social exclusion and poverty with a glorious screw you to the normal world. By today's standards, Design for Living may seem incredibly tame, but when you watch films like this, you have to think about its context, its time, place, and the society of the time it was made in. We, of course, had the depression going on. People were fed up with the world, the establishment, and I think partly in point because of the end of World War One, when the kind of the established norms of people was kind of really blown out the window. Suddenly, I think people did suddenly look at the world a lot differently. And although made in kind of like the 1930s, I think Design for Living would probably be, I suppose, that kind of generation who grew up in a completely different world that wasn't as black and white as the one before. The setting and the place of the film is also quite important. This is Bohemian France, the kind of the dreamy idealism of Paris. It, in fact, it reminded me of the way kind of Tom and George live of something like Ewan McGregor in Moulin Rouge, that kind of romantic soul looking for their muse. And although society had changed a great deal, women were still, I think, expected to fit a certain type. They were not supposed to be sexually aware and even indeed proactive. And in many respects, that is a battle that is still going on today. But I think it is Gilda who is certainly the most interesting character of the entire film for this very reason. In Coward's play, she is there to support the men and Lubitsch and Hecht had other ideas, making her the main catalyst for almost everything that occurs. And it doesn't really take long to kind of get to what she really wants, which is sex. Now, you might think the fact that the whole film will be about kind of Gilda trying to play Tom and George uh, off each other and the, kind of the resolution will be that they find out but they actually find out that they're both seeing her um, quite early on in the film and it's not this kind of like farcical film you might expect and indeed really I think it is key to actually understanding her character because sex is her driving force she explicitly demands it and makes absolutely no apology for enjoying it even today there's a huge imbalance in the view of a men and women who are promiscuous. If a man sleeps with many women, he's essentially just considered to be typical of his gender. For a woman to sleep with like so many men, she is liable to be subject to all manner of slurs from both male and females. I think it's important also to talk about the film. Uh, this film is not yet rated, the brilliant documentary about the really bizarre rating system in America. And you can clearly see that the people who do the rating have an issue with women and sex, i.e. They don't like seeing women enjoy it, basically, and films that have scenes with a woman enjoying sex are often given a R rating pretty quickly. And I kind of wonder, really, how this would have gone down at the time. I mean, I dare say some female members of the audience would have been squirming in their seats with coy approval at Gilda's behaviour. And the screenplay is very much makes it implicitly clear what she wants. It's true we have a gentleman's agreement, but unfortunately, I am no gentleman. Lubitsch Camera also sexually objectifies both male and female. Laura Mulvey's essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which is something I'm actually reading for the Ridley Scott episode, uh, part two I'm prepping at the moment on Thelma and Louise, 
explores the idea that cinema is essentially a male-dominated medium in which the camera is merely an extension of the male gaze. And I, I think this, this view holds a lot of credence. Um, think about the amount of scenes of pointless female nudity we have. My all-time favourite must be Halle Berry in Swordfish, where we see her topless. Absolutely no need other than to play to teenage boys in the audience. Occasionally, though, directors such as Lubitsch democratise the so-called male gaze. Design for Living begins on a train with Gilda watching George and Tom sleep, and the camera work suggests it's an extension of her manifest desire, eyeing up which ones she likes the most, and to be blunt, which ones she wants to sleep with first. Lubitsch and Hex Nextries make both Tom and George virtually the same person. We like both of them, they're both quick-witted and have clear affection for her and each other, yet neither is positioned as being the more favourable to win Gilda, which we would think would be the point of the narrative. Indeed, their only other option is that there, rather than settling for one, Gilda will have both, a thought so apparently absurd that we could never think in a million years that the film will head in this direction. However, a depression era of film this is, and now we must refer to its audience. Hollywood films were supposed to be escapism from the crappy world, there was supposed to be nothing more to them other than the aesthetic quality of the stars in them and the escapist joy they offered, or at least that was what people thought they should be. Design for Living dares to be a little different. George and Tom begin in squalor and eventually find wealth, yet crucially it means absolutely nothing to them. In fact, making it is neither here or there. What they want is Gilda and what, and what they want to do is their own thing in their own way. In this case, their own thing essentially means becoming a threesome and sexual odyssey that will entail. What a radical concept this is, even for today. The establishment or upper classes are embodied in Max, whom Gilda marries in order to spare Tom and George's friendship. Max is boring, stuffy, vapid, and crucially, Gilda will not consummate her marriage with him. As struggling artists, Tom and George have none of the material comforts he can offer. Instead, they are free of society's chains and have no care for form or instantly respecting those more wealthy or older than themselves. For all its idealism, I would contest that Design for Living knows that its central love affair is totally outlandish. Indeed, it is escapist as anything of the time. Despite the social climate, traditional values were still in place. Men and women were married and that was it. I would contest that this is more satirical. Max and his boring life is a sniper at the older generation. Indeed, as I understand, social satire was something quite abundant in Lubitsch's work. Digs that politicians were always crowd pleasers and they were frequently turning up in his work. Well, Julia, great news for you. Our party's in the bag. Really? Yes, sir. Guess what? I give up. Mr. Eaglebauer has accepted. Is that good? Say, listen. I'll guarantee you one thing, that this party be a success, and inside of two weeks, we'll be invited to the Eagle Bowers. I see. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Oh, don't talk like that. Strump and Eagle Bower are figuring on the greatest publicity campaign in the history of cement. Well, what about the Strumps? Don't we have to invite them, too? Mr. Strump comes first. Strump and Eagle Bower. No, no, no. We can't have them at the same time. They're not on speaking terms. That's right. I forgot about Mr. Strump and Mrs. Eagle Bower. Oh, don't mention that. Don't even breathe it. I won't. You promise? Promise. Word of honor. Cross my heart. And please don't worry about the strumps. Week from Tuesday, we have the strumps. That's diplomacy. 
And if this strump party is a big social success, is there any chance we'll be invited to the strumps? It's a cinch. What a season. Overall, I think his direction perfectly complements the story. He does not get in the way, and I was surprised at how long some of the takes were as well. And I think you can kind of get the impression that the film has uh, stage origins because there was um, lots of kind of scenes in which it's kind of just two people in a room and then someone coming in and out and going and things like that. Very much in the way theatre sometimes works. But for me, I think the most interesting aspect is definitely Heck's writing. Heck's dialogue is so perfectly written with laser-guided put-downs and knowing remarks that every word feels like it has come straight off the page, which is not an insult to the writing or the actors. Moreover, this is a dialogue-driven piece with every line serves a very direct purpose in relation to the characters and how they are feeling. You can't imagine improvisation being heavy on set. If I were to compare Gilda and Tom and George to anyone, I would say they're a lot like children. When Max tells Gilda to guess where he, who he saw in London, Gilda responds without a scent of irony, the king. This childishness makes their behaviour seemingly more acceptable to a point. Even when they have made it, so to speak, they're not affected by their surroundings. The desires are far more simple. It's almost a disclaimer, you can't take them seriously, therefore the amorality of their existence is diluted. It is the director and writer smuggling more subversive messages into their work, a common trait of directors in the studio system. As the trio drive off, we can only wonder if they will kind of make it, so to speak. Certainly there is a new honesty, killed or kisses both men on the lips. Society will no doubt shun them and tut, but at least they're going to go and give it a go. You can easily imagine the contemporary ones laughing along, leaving the cinema to the miserable world of the economic gloom. It all sounds slightly familiar, doesn't it, given the state of the world we are in today? After its release, Design for Living would be heavily edited and even banned after the stricter implication of the code. For a Criterion pick, this may not be one of the glamour releases that they put out, but I certainly think you can see its relevance and in film history. It is a ridiculously good fun film to watch, and at an hour and a half, it absolutely breathes by. And you might not be one of the kind of obsessive collectors of the collection like I am, but I can definitely recommend, even if you just rent it or something like that, giving it a watch, because it certainly was a kind of a breath of fresh air and certainly a very surprising film to me. Okay, so now on to the disc itself and the extras. Now, this was actually a two-disc affair, so on the first disc, I've got to first talk about the picture quality. Now... I didn't get the Blu-ray of this. I have looked at the Blu-ray.com review of the film. They gave it three and a half stars out of five, which might sound not sound a great deal, but I certainly think you have to kind of give them uh, certainly a lot of respect for what they've done because I would imagine that um, finding a pristine print of this film would have been quite hard. And they've done what I would call a uh, respectful restoration of the film. There are still some scratches and some noise present, but I think the kind of the art of preservation and uh, restoration in films is to be uh, as respectful as possible. They might have easily been able to remove some of the um, the damage, but I think it would have kind of uh, challenged the integrity of what they're doing. And I certainly you know we're in this kind of age, aren't we, where we've got... it's so ironic, isn't it? Because when Blu-ray came along, we were just amazed by it, but we've already got this thing going on this year, the whole kind of picture noise reduction issue. And they haven't kind of cranked that up to a factor of 10 to clean the film up too much. I think they, I think Criterion knows what its uh, its audience wants and I think the film looked perfectly fine. I had the standard definition DVD and it, on my television it looked absolutely fine. The sound as well, um, it's a mono soundtrack. Um, 
good clear sound, the dialogue is crisp and clear. Again, I'm not a big fan of when um, restoration work, when they kind of artificially make stereo mixes, even 5-1 mixes, um, you know, just listen to my episode on the World at War for that. But um, no, they've just done, they've just basically cleaned up what was already there and it's a pretty good job. You don't need any uh, surround sound effects in this film anyway. It's definitely kind of a dialogue driven piece. Overall, I'm perfectly happy with the sound picture. Um, like I said, I haven't seen the Blu-ray, but I would recommend, I don't, I don't know if, if you were going to pick the film up to buy the Blu-ray anyway, because, um, you know, it's getting to that stage now where I think um, I'm looking at a lot of my DVDs wondering whether I should upgrade. And that's something I never kind of thought I would uh, do so um, so soon, but I, certainly in recent weeks I have been rebuying a lot of my catalogue. Again, that's something I promised myself I wouldn't do, but uh, hey-ho, whatever. Anyway, so... On the first disc, you obviously get the film, and there is a short film called The Clerk, which is a Lubrick Direct segment of a 1932 omnibus, omnibus film, sorry, called If I Had a Million, starring Charles Lawton. It's only about two minutes long. Um, it's, it's only like a short little sketch, really, and to be brutally honest with you, I'm not quite sure what it's actually doing on there, but whatever, it's just, uh, I suppose, a little kind of um, amusing little two minutes you can watch. There's also, I think, one of the, the best... Um, Probably the best feature on both discs, actually, is a selected scene commentary with William Paul. And it's really good stuff. It's about 35 minutes and it talks about Trouble in Paradise and Design for Living. It's definitely worth watching after you've seen the films. It gives a lot of context, a lot of the stuff that happens. But um, he, he kind of gives it, uh, I suppose, some background as to what the kind of contemporary audiences may have found funny and what kind of specifically about it would have appealed to those watching it. And I kind of love his observations because they it's the type of textual analysis I like, which is it's deep enough to broke thought, but it's not too intellectual as to alienate you with some kind of crazy out there theories. But definitely, as I said, it's my favourite feature on the, on, the, uh, on the disc. Now, this too comes with an ITV stage production of Design for Living with an introduction by Noel Coward. It's a great intro from Coward. He uh, appears smoking and gives some backstory as to the origin of the play, how it was written for him and three friends, um, sorry, two friends, Alfred Lund and Lynn Fontaine. You don't get plays like this on television anymore, which is a bit of a shame because I, I kind of, I did enjoy this actually. I mean, it's fairly typical. I've, I've seen lots of these types of things, especially the Shakespeare stuff we used to watch when I was doing um, English and theatre studies. Um, kind of television cameras, small sets, and it certainly does feel like a play more than a TV show. The actors um, overact and there are nu numerous pauses in their speech for a dramatic effect. In the play, Gilda does not have a prominent as part as the men. And you can see that she is not the focus of the play. Indeed, the film makes her far more central, as I said before. The men in the play are named Otto, played by the quite frankly scary John Wood, and Leo. And Max is also renamed Ernest. Um, I... I, I kind of disagree, actually, with one of the observations that I've found that, that the film is completely different from the play. I don't think it's that different. You can certainly see the DNA of the play in the film, but I definitely found in the play there was far more of a homosexual undertone to it. I'm sure that comes from Coward. I don't, I, perhaps it even, you know, I talked about how radical the film was, perhaps even to make it that obvious was... Uh, would have been too far out there, but definitely I get the the uh, feeling that when Gilda's not around, um, these two guys are getting it on. Um, it's a perfectly watchable piece. I haven't got. I've only watched it the once. I, I, I 
I don't think I'll be going back to it in a hurry, but um, it's interesting, I suppose, if you have um, even just a passing interest in kind of the adaption process, because it's you can see how Hecht and Lubitsch adapted the film, and uh, yeah, it's nice to have it on there as a companion piece, but um, I don't know if it's, it's essential viewing. Um, I guess that's one of the things that I love about the Criterion Collection. They always kind of seem to go that extra mile with things like this. And, you know, an hour and 20 minutes or whatever, it kind of far, uh, it's far longer than most special features you get on this. But, and on the subject of the adaption, there's a 22-minute piece by um, film scholar and writer Joseph McBride who takes a deeper look at the script and how heck and Lubitsch made the piece there. Very interesting. I suppose as well, you know, like I was saying, you could uh, watch the film, the play, and then watch this little thing to kind of we kind of get in there about how the how the, the changes were made and uh, the reasoning behind them. But overall, I was really impressed with both discs. It's uh, certainly one when I saw it announced, I didn't know anything about it before. And this is the thing about buying the films is that it probably cost me about 60 quid a month really to kind of keep up to date with buying all the criteriums and some of them I've got to be honest I'm I am um, I'm not exactly kind of that excited to see and sometimes I watch them I'm really surprised and this was certainly one of them and uh, I'm quite glad I'm actually doing these shows because I think this might have been one I put on the back burner for a bit and uh, more for me for doing that but that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Um, you can find me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can come over to the blog, uh, 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. Just let you know, do go over to the blog and click on the exclusive pages because there's going to be some more content going up there at the, mo at the moment. And they are shows which are just solely uh, on the blog. They won't be appearing on the feed. At the moment, there's a James Bond marathon going on there, but I am going to be putting up more episodes in that. And just some little kind of extra content if you want to uh, hear more from me. That would be the place to find it. But other than that, I'm going to be getting off now. Many thanks for listening and I will speak to you soon. Bye.